You're listening to the Solo to CEO podcast with Davina Frederick. Hello, and welcome to the Solo to CEO podcast, where we provide a mix of powerful, thought-provoking, and practical information to assist you in your transformation from solo to CEO of a high-impact, high-revenue-generating business. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm here today with Felicia Van Burry, attorney and CEO of the FAB Law Firm. The FAB Law Firm provides divorce and mediation services to clients in Florida and in New York. Welcome, Felicia. I'm so glad to have you here today on the Solo to CEO podcast. Hey, good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. So tell us more about your law practice and how you serve your clients. I know I said uh, divorce and mediation services uh, for clients in Florida and New York, but that's kind of, um, you know, real general. So tell us specifically what the nature of your practice and how you serve your clients. Absolutely. I'm excited to do that. Um, We are a father's rights law firm. We we focus on representing fathers with respect to divorce, custody matters, child support matters, and alimony matters. Um, We're in the metro Orlando area, as well as the five boroughs of NYC. And um, my firm is a boutique firm. We look to service high-end clients. We do so virtually and paperless, and we do so in an efficient way as to save them money, time, and to make it as seamless as possible. So that is a lot to unpack here because you do you have several you have several things that you do that are very unique. So I want to talk about all of those. And so let's start out talking about um, father's rights and why you chose to kind of niche in that area specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a little background about me: I out of law school. I was a public defender in Manhattan. And uh, when you're a public defender, you love to represent the underdog. And that was the most um, fulfilling part of that job for me. You know, if you are accused of a crime, if you happen to be a person of color, if you are poor, you are at a disadvantage. And I loved doing that because I was providing high service, legal services. Um, to people who could otherwise afford it and sometimes getting very, very positive results. Mm-hmm. So I think it translates, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. now with, you know, divorces and child support, a lot of men feel as if the system is stacked against them, that, the you know, the courts favor the mothers or women. And I love, love, love educating them. I love protecting their rights. I love asserting their rights and I love getting them positive results, which we, we do a lot of the time. So, so that's why father's rights because I, they're the underdogs. Right. Right. I love that. I love that. So, and tell me about your, uh, your decision to practice in two states, a multi-state practice, um, (laughs) especially when you're kind of, starting out, you know, is, yeah, is absolutely. A challenge. 
I might be a little wordy here, so bear with me because it's a big kind of thing to sort of make a concise statement. Essentially, I found my, I moved to Florida uh, three years ago, October 2017. I had been practicing in New York at that point for around four years um, going on, uh, and I did not know anyone professionally here in Florida. I never practiced family law mm-hmm. and I came here for family. By the way, my family was here, there was a death, and I decided it was best for me to be closer to my family. So it was an abrupt move. I left a six-figure job in, you know, working for a firm, gray and gray, in Long Island, um, mm-hmm. making very, very good money um, to coming here and sort of starting all over. And I, you know, I did uh, have to take the bar and do that whole thing. Uh, got a gig working uh, for a big national firm, hated it and decided that I wanted to go out on my own. Um, went out, chose family law uh, strategically, and we can get into that, um, and chose a virtual practice. So my practice is 100% virtual from day one. Mm-hmm. And I focused specifically only in New York, not only, excuse me, in Florida at first. So let's be very clear. New York was just added on. Right. Um, because I wanted to scale. I have the license. I have an office. I have an associate out there that works for me. It just made sense. But the concise answer is that I focused first in Orlando for a year um, and then decided to scale out. So explain to me how um, because I think you'll have a lot of attorneys who have a lot of attorneys who would love to have a virtual practice. You know, that's kind of the, it's kind of the dream for a lot of lawyers to have a virtual practice. Right. And they're trying <laughs> oh, to figure man. out how to do that, especially oh, in man. something that is <laughs> litigation intensive, like family law. And, um, they're probably wondering how you do that in the litigation intensive practice. How do you, how do you have a virtual, so kind of describe what that looks like. So, yes, and I will describe exactly how that looks like, but I sort of fell into my lap. I didn't know what I didn't know, so I just did what I wanted, something that fit my life. My law firm was going to fit my life. It wasn't going to be the other way around. That's a promise I made to myself. Right. So if I'm being, I'm a very transparent, authentic person. And uh, I started to read all the business books and listen to all the podcasts and speak to the gurus. You and I even had a conversation. Right. I um, remember. We had a good conversation and you, let, you, you gave me some good nuggets there. Um, and so I became a student and I got an MBA. I gave myself an MBA is what I'd like to say. Because my firm, we haven't talked about that yet, has been profitable since day one. But that's another conversation. So I'm going to answer your question. How do I do the virtual firm? I just, you know, I read the Lean Startup. I read a whole bunch of books about startups and I looked at my law firm. I look at my law firm as a business first and as a startup. And I'm not an attorney that that, that has a business. I'm a business person who's running a law firm. And I know that's like a very like spicy statement. It might be controversial, but I was committed to understanding the business side of law because I'm running a business. So I did everything 
uh, I've got a virtual office. There's lots of different um, offices you can use. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> going to plug a specific person unless they decide to sponsor you. <laughs> but I use a virtual office and um, I work from home. And if I, with the office, all my mail goes there. And this particular company has offices throughout Central Florida and throughout New York. It's the same company. And um, I got a plan with them. It's a couple hundred dollars, yes, a couple hundred dollars a month to have uh, access to all their offices. And I have one that's my main office and I pay extra money. So let's call it, I'm a numbers girl because at the end of the day, let's keep it real, running business without money. So mm-hmm. I want to give people the exact number. So let's say I spend about $400 a month between, let's say, my main office downtown Orlando, having access to their conference room, having the ability to run out any of their conference rooms anytime and getting my mail there. And also, I have another plan with them where I uh, can use any of their other offices if I book in advance for a flat fee. So it's very simple. I go to court. I speak with clients. uh, uh, I use Vonage. I'll say that. So that my staff, and I use 1099 to start out, can call, everyone can use the same phone system as long as they have your username and password. Um, I use a CRM where everyone can talk to everyone at the same time, see the same things at the same time. Mm-hmm. I do weekly meetings with, now it's moved from me being a solo to a small firm. I just hired three weeks ago an associate and I have a full-time legal assistant as of February, but for the first year and four months, it was a solo, I was a one woman show. I want to be transparent about that as well. So, but I do do everything virtually. No, I do not tell my clients. They hire me to, unless they specifically ask, which no one does. <laughs> I know that's a question I get a lot of times. If they want to meet with me, I block off Tuesdays and Thursdays as days which I meet clients for in-person meetings or I do case evaluations, paid consultations. I block off all my time. And if I have to do a deposition, I go to a deposition. I have to go to court date, I go to the court date. If I have to meet with a client, I meet with them in my office. It's an opulent building downtown. It looks fancy, but I'm not paying that $2,000 rent. So I hope that kind of answers your question. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, I, I I love that you broke that down for for people so we can get a good visual of it because uh, and I and and I love that you started out. You know, you and I had had a conversation about that because this is one of the things that uh, and I was talking to somebody else about this earlier. Uh, I think yesterday on a podcast um, because this was one of the challenges when I started my law practice, you know, 12 years ago mm-hmm. um, and throughout the years is I would have people say to me over and over again, well, your, your clients aren't going to like that. If you do it that way, your clients aren't going to like that or people aren't going to like that or, you know, and And usually what I figured out was the people that were saying that to me were people who had an agenda that they were trying to get me to do something the way they wanted (laughs) me to do it. (laughs) Hallelujah on that one. (laughs) Hallelujah on that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so and I realized (laughs) that, you know, I needed uh, uh, that I could create something 
I could create a business the way that I wanted a business. And, you know, I could also experiment, right? We can experiment with things. And if they don't work out the way that we envision, we can change it up and try something else, right? Because it's our business. And I'm sure you've done that with your business, right? There's probably oh. things that you've tried and you go, well, yeah. that didn't work quite the way I envisioned, so I'll try something else, right? That's the beauty of business, of you owning your own business, right? Absolutely. Well, to piggyback off of things you just said, number one, I want to tell anyone who's like within the sound of my voice, do it afraid. You're going to feel afraid. The world-class people out there feel afraid. Um, and you're going to feel afraid. Do it anyway, right? That's right. one thing. And, and two, this is this is like real high-level mindset stuff, but all you need are X amount of your ideal clients. So I broke down. I was like, how many? I had a revenue goal in mind, which I exceeded the first year. And I said I had a lifestyle goal, which I met as far as taking vacations. And I said, how many clients at my retainer, do I need, you know, in Central Florida to do business with me to come to that number, that top line number? And I believe it was something like 150, I don't have it in front of me, clients. Right. So I'm saying that to say, you want to deter people who are not your ideal client, who want the brick and mortar, if that's what they want, and they're going to pay more for that brick and mortar. You want, I decided, if you look at my website, I wanted to my brand to be kind of young, kind of funky, even the colors I used. And I wanted it to appeal to a type of client that I wanted to work with. Someone who could use technology, technology friendly, somebody who wanted uh, somebody to shake it up a little bit and not the good old, you know, the same old good old boy attorney, which is a great choice for those who want that person. <laughs> yeah. there is enough for everybody so I'm not knocking that um, and so I just need my tribe and your tribe will get it when I tell people we're virtual it saves you money blah blah they're like yeah yeah they love it you just kind of make that a part of your little pitch when you are selling yourself to a potential client that you're not going to be for everyone and I'm not going to be for everyone. And that's okay. Right. That's okay. Yeah. And, and people who may want to work with you may not want to work with somebody else. And people who may want to work with somebody else may not want to work with you. And you, you know, there's enough The the thing is, is that people get in a mindset of, of there's only one pie. And when you have a piece of the pie, it's going to take away from my piece of the pie. And we never think, well, we can just make more pie. You know, we're going to make different kinds of pie. <laughs> you I know, love, there's enough people like there's enough people for everybody. And I what I've learned is I don't want to work for everybody. And when you're doing really good marketing, you're going to it's going to intentionally deter people who are not your ideal person. Like, right. for example, a broke person might not be your ideal person or. <laughs> Somebody who is not tech, you know, like I don't, I like people who know how to scan an email because we're virtual and it just, so people who cannot in my intake process follow my electronic intake form or my team's instructions to fill that out, I, I reject them at hello, they're not for me, but they may be for you. I'll send them up, up the street to, to you. <laughs> right, and that's right, okay. Right. And that's okay. 
And that, and that your, your area of practice too is, you know, there are different areas of practice that may um, be more, um, uh, you know, somebody was discussing that in one of the groups in one of the social media groups about there are certain areas of practice that you're going to have people who are less inclined where you might have an older pop, an elderly population that is, you know, not comfortable with technology. And so that kind of practice might not work as well. Right. Well, Can I push back against that? Um, For a period of time in my practice, I rented what's it called? Co-working space. And I had like a 1099 there certain days of the week, specifically for Mm -hmm. my firm. And we had a designated room. I paid a little bit more. So instead of like the 400, I quote you guys, let's call it 500 for everything a month with the, with this uh, service I use. She was there two or three times a week in person. uh, Let's call it eight hours or however many, 15 hours a week, let's say five hours each day. So if someone were to come in or make an appointment, there would be a physical representation to notarize your um, document, uh, to explain a financial affidavit, et cetera, et cetera. So I say your firm has to work for you. If you're, if you're a mother and you have a young child and you want to be at home or whatever, I think there's always a way to make it work. It's just not traditional. And so a lot of people are going to make a face when you say it, um, but it's doable because I know people who are like elder law attorneys who do it and, you know, as, you know, criminal attorneys who have a higher um, traffic rate at their firm, like pop-ups, um, who do it. So I think it's doable. You just might have to finagle it a little. Oh, I ran an estate planning practice that was virtual and uh, some of my best clients were in their 80s. And uh, some of them I never met in person. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it can be done. Um, so moving on, let's talk about, I, I want to talk about kind of, you, you have a new venture going on. And, and I know you want to talk about that. And I want to talk about that because um, you, and I, and I want to talk about how you came to develop the expertise. So I want to talk about your timeshare days. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you want to, I'm an open book, whatever you want to talk about, I'm down. <laughs> so tell me, so let's, because I think that's an interesting, I always, I always find it interesting to talk about the um, experiences that people have um, that shape them as lawyers that are outside, that are, that are outside their legal um, experience. And I know that you you work for a while in timeshare sales. Absolutely. And I find that really fascinating. So tell us about that a little bit. Absolutely. So, okay. So back in, I think it's October, 2017, I moved here. My grandpa passed away. Grandpa's girl, totally. Most of my family was here. I moved here. Um, I was licensed in New York as of 2012 or 2011. I can't remember off the top of my head. And so now I'm coming to a new state and I have to take the bar again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's expensive. (laughs) And, you know, so I had to work. At the time, I had a boyfriend who was in sales and I was working um, bartending. I went back to like what I used to do in college. And he was like, Felicia, you're like the most persuasive person I've ever met. I don't know if it was a compliment or not. (laughs) 
You're like the most persuasive person I've ever met. I think you should do sales. I, you know, I think you'd be great. Uh, cut, cut to the quick. He was working in timeshare at, I won't say the company. He's working for one of the big companies here in central Florida. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, they had an open house. He's like, come do it. I never did sales. I didn't even know what a timeshare was. <laughs> oh, wow. So didn't, never did. It. So anyhow, I went through their, you know, sales training, uh, which is like, I think a six week program or two week program. And, you know, I graduated at the top of that quote unquote, they, you know, they told me you have like the sales chops. I became obsessive, you know, type A, all the Zig Ziglar books, all the little red book of sales, selling, all of that I read. I listened to all the podcasts on sales. I perfected, I memorized my um, sales scripts so that if you woke me up at three o'clock in the morning, I can tell I can do it like verbatim. I became obsessed with it. And when I went on the sales floor, I worked there for about three months. I was always at the top of, they have you like on a list. I was always at a number one or two. I was on track to do something called President's Club, which you're at the top 1% um, of the company in sales. And timeshare is basically where you are forced into a 90-minute presentation. You're promised something. And at the end of it, you, you can elect to buy. And I was getting people to spend $30,000, $40,000 after 90-minute presentation almost every single day I would sell. And timeshare is nothing anyone needs. <laughs> so, like, it's a hard – it's a face-to-face. It's a very hard sell. And most right. people are there for, like, the free breakfast or whatever they're being promised. So I did become very good at sales. And that is, I would tell anyone that's my secret sauce because I was able um, to start my firm. I did not have any money. I did not have credit cards. Um, I run my firm debt free. <laughs> I've never borrowed a, a dime, not right. from a family member, not from a HELOC and not from, you know, so I had basically like maybe a thousand dollars. Uh, I had gotten a bonus from the company I, would, I was leaving from. I had like $1,000, 500 went to the website. It's still the website I have <laughs> now. And um, I started selling. Um, I, I did a quickie marketing plan. This is what people don't tell you. And I don't know if they do that. I did use some of like, you know, the avos, the, the lead generation things. Because I need, I was in a desperate state. You need a, a short game and you need a long game. So the SEO and the referrals and all that, that's the long game. I need to eat that month <laughs> and pay right. rent that month. Right. So I didn't have the luxury or a husband as a safety net. Or um, I do have family. I could always stay with family. And, you know, my family would give me money. But I was a grown 30-year-old woman. You know what I mean? So that just wasn't right. my mentality. <laughs> Um, so I use those programs. Everyone said that they wouldn't work. And I think they do. I think all marketing works a little or a lot, depending on your skill set. And I took those, I would say low quality leads and I convert them into sales. And I was profitable from day one. Um, cause I had a CPA 
And so, you know, elected for me to be an S Corp, let's say 2018, he looked at my first quarter numbers. He was like, this is crazy. You're profitable from day one. He's explaining to me. I didn't even know what that meant. (laughs) I was just, no, I was just, when people were calling in, I was making them into a client. That's what I was doing. And I figured everything else out as I went. Does that make sense? So um, that's the truth. So in the first year, and I like to talk about numbers because women like talking about numbers. Um, I'm not going to get so specific, but I will say I was able to exceed my goals, which was to do a quarter million in the first year. I did more than a quarter million top line, and I took in just over six figures as an income. And for my first year, everyone told me that's crazy. But I think that a lot of lawyers don't know how to sell. So I, or people in general. And I think that's the issue because you can have all of the other things in place, software, the this, the that. If you don't have a sales process, a sales script, um, if you're not converting the people you're getting in, then you're not going to have any money in the bank account. Yeah. So I love that you're, uh, I, I love the, I wanted to talk about this because you and I had talked about this before. And I think that is one of the things that holds so many, uh, particularly women attorneys back um, when they're first starting out in their practice, because it's one of the things that they do such a disservice to us in a law school. When we're going through law school, we're one of the three learned professions. They drill it into our head, into our heads. And we're in law school. You're one of three learned professions and somehow they make that they make it out as though it's dirty to talk about this being a business and talk about it being a money generating, you know, endeavor, and that it is necessary to to for us for it to be a business that generates money and feeds our families, right? And for us to do that, sales is fundamental. When I learned how to have a sales conversation, it changed everything in my business. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a skill that it, it is by far the, one of the most necessary skills that you have when you own and run a business. You have to learn how to have a sales conversation and how to talk to people comfortably about money and how to ask for money for your services and then to shut your mouth and let people pay you, <laughs> you know, after Ooh, you- if you could say, can you put that on a t-shirt or a billboard? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's uncomfortable. Now it shouldn't, it shouldn't externally be uncomfortable or awkward. The conversation the intern internally is uncomfortable and you have to lean in because all of your issues with money and self-esteem come up. It's a little foo-foo-la. And I speak to a whole bunch of people, friends, we have lunch to our attorneys and they're like, I can't, um, I'm not making any money, that we get into the real conversation, they're doing payment plans, they're taking, they're, they're dropping their prices. And I'm like, here's the deal. We, at least I took six figures out in student loans. I have to have a high end, um, high end product, just like a doctor, just like a hedge fund manager, just like because you went to school seven years, I have experience outside of opening my firm. I think that you, you don't blink. You very flat-footed and straight-faced have to ask for the money that 
you command based on your expertise. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's as simple as that, and it is uncomfortable. It, but at the end of the day, you have bills to pay, money's not dirty, and you are providing, hopefully, <laughs> a high quality. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it, I, I think, I think you have to go into, I think we're going, we're going to go into the conversation, making the assumption with anyone that we're, that, you know, the competency is going to be the baseline. You know, yes. we're going to assume that the competency is the baseline. <laughs> if, if you have a bar license, the state is be competent to practice law. Now, what you yes. are not is experienced if you're just starting out. And then the more you do it, the more experienced you become. And we assume that you're going to, you know, do what is necessary to become experienced and high quality and stay competent. But all that being said, that learning, learning how to talk, like you said, learning how to talk about money and not buying into other people's money stories and, and uh, working on your own money stuff and all of that stuff is critical in being able to run a business and, and learning how to have that sales conversation. And, and, you know, even today I was reading something in a, in a group on Facebook about somebody talking about, you know, and, and so much anger is put back on clients who um, who are complaining to the lawyers about, oh, you're charging too much money for this. And the lawyers are angry and complaining and they're, you know, and seem to be resentful about, uh, you know, people complaining about them charging too much. But the issue is not with the clients, because people in general always complain about things costing too much money and they do it in every profession. If you go in copywriters groups, you're going to see the same stories. If you go in marketers groups and graphic designers groups, you're going to see the same, you know, talk to any graphic designer and they'll tell you about clients who keep offering them, you know, opportunities to do stuff for the exposure. Right. So, Every profession out there is going to talk to you about clients who want stuff done for free. And, and, they, and we all think we're unique in that. Coaches, consultants, attorneys, engineers across the board are going to tell you clients always want stuff for free. The issue yeah, but that's is not your problem, right? That, exactly. The issue not is not your problem. Yeah. Yeah. The issue is, is that you have to, you have to just find a way to, um, what is it? The four agreements in the four agreements. Uh, the, what is it? Agreement number two, don't take it personally. <laughs> you have to find a way to not take it personally. It's not about you. I love that book. I give it to everyone. Yeah. Well, I think if I could kind of piggyback off what you're saying, when I see those conversations and some of those groups, um, it's also our job to manage the expectation. That's also the sales project. That's why I have the other thing going on that you were getting to mention. You do have to manage the expectation, maybe change the flat fee billing I just did. Um, do whatever feels more comfortable for you, but you have to, at the beginning of a, a conversation about someone coming to retain your services, give them an idea how much this can cost them worst case scenario. And I always do that. Mm-hmm. Worst case scenario, this, if this divorce drags out across a year and a half, two years, it's going to cost you, depending on their facts, X amount. And I break it down for them. 
And some people might be scared to do that, so you're going to scare them off. I'm not interested in someone who, who feels like I um, have taken advantage of that and misrepresented Correct. anything. I, I want to give you the the truth that this may cost you. This is a you know, let's say, a mid asset divorce. You know, with whatever issues, this can cost up to twenty to twenty five thousand dollars before trial. In the worst case scenario, if it's very litigious, and I want to break it down for them. And this way, we can have an authentic conversation, and that expectation is set. If you're just taking $3,000 and you're saying, well, we're probably going to settle this in the next four months, in a year and a half, the case is still going on, they're going to be pissed off. And honestly, as a professional, that's a failure on your behalf. Right, right. I mean, I just had a situation where um, uh, I personally received a, a, a bill from an attorney that I had an expectation that a retainer was paid and I had, because the way that I would used to do it is when the retainer would get low, I would then let my clients know the retainer's getting low. I'm going to need it, this replenished and then I bill against it. So I had an expectation that this attorney was going to let me know when this gets low, you'll need to replenish it. And I bill against it. But instead what I got was I got a bill for thousands that she'd already built failure and communication. it was poor communication on her part about billing and so then that puts me in a position where i'm kind of like that eh, i got a bad taste in my mouth about that you're not and you're not trusting her or you know you're not trusting her i yeah. do a weekly update to clients every friday yeah um, about their case and when i send out bills which is once a month I let you know, oh, you have X amount on your retainer. These are the next steps that are happening on your case. The next bill is going to go out July 10th. It's, you're going to have to replenish your retainer at that time. And it gives people the opportunity to come up with thousands of dollars. The average American does not have thousands of dollars laying around. You have to set your client up for success. You know, so we have to take some responsibility for that. Yeah. And, you know, that whole thing, that whole thinking in terms of um, how, you know, the golden rule, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, how would, how would you, how would, how would you like to be treated? You know, I mean, if it were you and you required legal services, what would work for you? You know, if you think. Knowing that how much I have to say throughout human, the year would work. <laughs> Human to human, if you think to yourself, if you think to yourself, if I were, if I were, if I had to have legal services, how would this, how would I want this, how would I want to be treated or how would I want this to be, you know, communicated to me? I think communication is really what we're talking about. Absolutely. Any services, it statistically shows that the, I think it says less between the ages of, I think it was 25 and 35. Um, the average American, if there was an emergency where they had to get their hands on $600, they would not have it in savings. So yeah. if that's what the culture is in the United States, um, you have to set your client up to know how much the bill is going to be, exactly when the next payment is going to be so that they can get their hands on that money. And uh, that I think that's a whole nother conversation, but I hope this helps somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um, 
we're, we're just about out of time. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you what kind of, you know, I love for people to share <laughs> their, you know, best gold nuggets for um, people who are on the solo to CEO journey that may be behind you that, you know, some of the lessons you've learned as you've been growing your practice, I know you have bigger and better things ahead of you, but so far, what are some of the things that you've learned that you can share with us that we can learn from your wisdom? Oh my, there's so many. Uh, the main thing is to get a quick marketing engine in your business to play the short game, whether that's Google AdWords, whether that's Avvo, whether that's uh, a lead generation service where you pay the next amount of dollars. Um, all of them can work if you have a great sales process. I'm talking to the person who's desperate. They're solo, not by choice necessarily, and mm -hmm. they need to pay their bills. Um, uh, mentorship. And mentorship doesn't necessarily mean uh, reaching out to a specific person. You can, because lawyers are generally busy, but you can have a mentor in the form of a book um, or a podcast, such as the one I'm on with Davina. She's a wealth of knowledge. Um, I listen to lots of legal podcasts, in which, which were game changers. And every time um, uh, they recommended a book or a service or whatever, I actually, you know, did it. And I ate the fish and threw away the bones. Um, you know, kept what worked, threw out what didn't. Um, you need community. Um, uh, I, I, I am a proponent of coaching, but if you can't necessarily afford coaching, there's a lot of really good Facebook groups, closed Facebook groups, podcasts. Um, I know Davina has a program, and I think you have an option where someone can have an initial conversation with you, and perhaps you can point them in the right direction. You need to find community, and there's so many out there that's really good. You have to find something that works for you. Um, that's what worked for me, being very specific and being specific about what your goals are. How much money do you need to pay your bills, your loans, and eat? Um, and what is how much do you how many clients do you need to get into the door? How many do you need to convert? Um, and and you have to have a specific plan written down at, um, that you're implementing and working at every single day. Um, uh, that is my tidbit. Um, I, I am starting a Facebook community. That's the first um, step, the unicorn entrepreneur. This is specifically just for sales, and it focuses on for legal services or any other services to help people with their sales process. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm thinking I'm going to be doing some free webinars and things like that uh, so people can find me at the Unicorn Entrepreneur Facebook group for now where we're going to be putting up free. It's, everything is free because I just want to give back. Um, they're looking for me. I think that's a good resource. If you're like, I don't have a sales process, help me. There'll be a lot of free stuff at, on my Facebook group. Um, you're looking for me specifically, and I know that you didn't ask me, but if you are looking for me specifically, I do have the Fab Law Firm. That's my, uh, you can find me on the Facebook group. You can email me at fab at the Fab Law Firm, Frank Applebob Fab at the fablawfirm.com. Um, and if I can, I will point you in directions uh, 
to, you know, help you. I, I think that's it. You need to find community. You need to find a mentor. You need to read. You have a business. <laughs> you need to figure out how to run a business, um, yeah. which you that's did not true. learn in law school. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think that is that is really the key. And to be that, to really dig in and be that, uh, recognize that you have, that your education um, you know, we really would love to say, okay, well, I've got, I've got my education. I went to law school and I got the education, but if you want to own your own business, your education is not complete <laughs> and it's, and you can, you can dig in and learn it all by experience. But the fact of the matter is, is that it, you'll probably get there a lot faster and be a lot more successful if you also engage in, you know, embrace being a lifelong learner and reading and, you know, asking the questions and doing the research and listening to podcasts. And there's a wealth of information out there, but you have to really embrace learning to be a business. I cannot Absolutely. agree with you more. You have to embrace learning to be a business owner and know that there are all these business skills out there from operations to marketing to, you know, sales. And it's really overwhelming. And that's how it makes sense to find a coach if you need to, mm -hmm. um, or a community. I, mm -hmm. I did, I, you know, whatever works for you, because there's so much information. If you Google, you can parallelize yourself with overload of information and not knowing which direction to go. So sometimes you can find someone or uh, who has like a podcast or a book or even a program. I know, Davina, you have a program. And if you like them, you, you may want to figure out the best investment is in yourself. I invest right. in my mind which then in turn makes me money because you have to change your thinking. You have to get the knowledge. So that would be my um, strong suggestion. And that's what I do. I'm, I read two nonfiction business books a month. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Good advice. Great advice. Great advice. Yeah. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And you answered my last question, which was you gave us the information on where we could find out more about you. So that's terrific. So Felicia, I'm so happy you were here today and, um, I know this was a short conversation, but I'm really glad that I think we packed a lot in. Um, and anybody yeah, who listens to this podcast is going to get just a wealth of information that's going to be really useful to them. So I really, really thank you for being here and thank sharing with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the good energy. Thank you so much. The Solo to CEO podcast is sponsored by D. Frederick Media and Marketing and the Solo to CEO system. We help professional women entrepreneurs transform from solos to CEOs of high-impact, high-revenue-generating businesses while reclaiming their time and creating the lifestyle of their dreams. If you are ready to skyrocket your revenue, cultivate a crackerjack team, and set up systems and automation to get your firm running like a well-oiled machine so you can focus on the highest and best use of your time, then you'll want to attend our latest presentation, Six Shifts to Transform Your Solo Practice into a Seven-Figure Firm with Total Ease. Register at law.solotoceo.biz webinar.